Hey, welcome to Highlands. My name is David. I'm the pastor here. Um, if you're with us online, I'd encourage you to jump on the Zoom with Amber. She'll give you uh, a link for that. She'll put that up in the comments. Um, we do some interactive stuff, and so we would love for you to participate in that with the Zoom watch party. Um, also, we are taking communion, and so if you have something you can make into communion, we announced that, but if you want to go grab something, you can. Crackers, juice, water, bread, whatever, whatever you got rolling, um, you can you can make it work. So uh, I want to I didn't want to tell you guys one more thing before I jump in uh, to today's passage. We are looking for space. If you didn't know that, we announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, this building is being sold. This space is being turned into something completely different. Uh, we couldn't use it. They didn't want us to stay because they just have different plans. Uh, and so we're in the process of looking. We asked you guys to use maybe some of your prayer time during Lent to pray for us about that. I don't have a ton to share that's worth sharing right now. What I would say is that we are looking at spaces. There is a space uh, specifically that, that we're trying to figure out what next steps would look like, crunching numbers, trying to understand a lot around that. Um, hopefully we'll have something to say more by the end of this week. But if you guys could just be praying uh, for our team that's looking at those things, for me, uh, for our finance team, for every leadership team, everybody who's involved in making those decisions that God would just guide us, give us wisdom um, in terms of that. And then kind of God would go before us with the people uh, that we could be leasing the space from just to just to let them know too, kind of put it on their hearts what, what he would want that space to be. Uh, we're reading Genesis. We're in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter three. It's going to come up on the screen. It'll come up online. Uh, for you guys at home, but I would always encourage you to try to follow along. There's something nice about tangibly looking at the scriptures. Um, Genesis 3, we're only, my plan was that we were going to spend a week on a chapter, and that's just not even close to possible for me. Uh, so we, chapter 2 ended up being two weeks, chapter 3 is going to end up being two weeks. We'll see where we go with 4 and 5. We're only going to do Genesis 1 through 5, and then we're going to we're going to switch to something else and take a little bit of a break and maybe come back uh, to Genesis later. So Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? All right, so we've gone through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 pretty extensively. And as we go into 3, one thing I want to remind you that the, one of the keys to understanding Genesis is context. Context is super important. I'm not going to go into all the details that I went into about context the first week we looked at Genesis, but I would encourage you if you didn't catch it to go back and listen to the podcast or, or check out that at least that portion of the sermon on YouTube because it is Genesis is incredibly frustrating and incredibly misread if, if you don't properly 
understand the context. And, and the reason is that specifically in the narrative that takes place that runs from Genesis 2 to 11, it's, it's a continual narrative and it's a genre that, that might be the most ancient genre that we have access to in terms of the modern world. And we, and we don't have a comparable one. It's, it's a genre that combines poetry and parable with history and geography. And, and we don't tend to do that. We, we tend to, our genres tend to either be metaphorical and poetic or, or literal and, and historical. And, and this is the context that, that molds those things together. And part of it is that this is, this is what psychologists and sociologists call hyper-realities, right? That there's, that there's kind of, there's, this, is, this can be dangerous, so please hear what I'm saying, is that truth can mean different things. And I don't mean that truth is all relative. What I mean is that there's a truth that we're talking about when we're talking about the scientific method of truth, but that's a relatively new definition of truth in terms of the age of the earth and, and people thinking about things, is that there's also a truth that exists in, in sort of, again, what sociologists and psychologists call these hyper-realities, these things that, that are just, they are just as true as scientific truths but, but we don't really access them in the same way. And so all that to say that to ask too many questions of Genesis that it isn't written to answer is just to leave yourself frustrated. And again, I would just say, go back. If you have questions about that, please feel free to reach out to me or, or somebody on our staff, but, but I'd go back and listen to what we talked about in Genesis 1. And so when we think about the original hearers, because that's the question, what would the, is the original author, author communicating to the original hearers? Um, they would have compared this story to a lot of ancient Near East origin stories that, that they had heard and that they were familiar with. And there's there's the story of Inkadu, if, if you're familiar with these, if you kind of reach back into sort of your myths and, and, and all of those things and those studies. And, and Inkadu becomes godlike, right? That that's the pursuit of Inkadu. And so Adam and Eve are, are pursuing and becoming in some way godlike. And then you look at Gilgamesh, which probably a lot of you are familiar with. That's probably the one we're most familiar with if we are. Um, and, and then there's also a Mesopotamian myth um, of Adapa. And, and in both of those, uh, humans encounter serpents that lead to them losing their immortality. And so these people would, would read these things, and just like we do, they would find these familiarities. They would find these cultural familiarities that they would associate with them. Now, one thing that separates it is only Adam and Eve experience loss of community with God, which is emphasized in, in Genesis. And, and that's significant to understanding the goals of this passage. And so if you want one flag to plant, that's one that I would plant. Second thing I want to say is that the New Testament and Christian theology are what lead us to think of the serpent as Satan. And that doesn't mean that that's, that that's wrong, it, but, but it is important to recognize that that wasn't what was going on with the original hearers. Old Testament Israelites don't seem to have made the connection between the serpent and, and Satan. Um, serpents to them would have been connected to the ideas of death and disorder. And, and so that's the representation of the serpent in this passage. John Goldingay, who is a, who, who's a theologian who, who looks extensively at Genesis, this is what he says. He says, Genesis emphasizes the non-supernatural earthly character of the tempter, which is the serpent, which is tempter is also a word that's often translated in the Old Testament for Satan. And, and this is one of the wild creatures as opposed to the domestic ones. Genesis 3 is illustrating a point that Genesis 1 implied. The, the creatures God made, they're not necessarily inclined to live the kind of life that God 
wants them to live. And that's why they need humans to steward them, to exercise control over them. And, and what Golden Gay says is that one aspect of the tragedy of Genesis 3 is that the serpent successfully reverses, and that's a big deal in Genesis, is there's this reversal out of the garden. The serpent reverses the relationship of leadership and lead between humanity and creation. Humanity was supposed to exercise beneficent leadership over creation, and instead, nature exercises kind of an evil, maleficent, really, leadership over humanity. And, and so the serpent steps in and the serpent starts to reverse things and, and twist things, right? The serpent makes God more restrictive and less generous than God actually is. And that sows a seed with Eve, right? He says, did God say you can't eat anything? Up to this point, the story is emphasized that God said you can eat all these things and there's this one constraint. But the snake plants this seed of, but isn't it really all constraint? And, and the story um, does not suggest, as some would say, that it is just apparently weak, that the woman is weak, the you here is plural, right? They can't say you is addressing a plurality, and the man is present. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. But, but what's happening is that the, the serpent's crafty. The serpent takes truth and, and twists it. And, and then Eve, of like leaning into that, doesn't repeat God's exact statement. Just like the serpent twists God's statement, Eve, maybe, maybe not even intentionally, God's statement is you'll sure die. And what that means is this sort of future perfect tense, right? That God says, if you eat of that, surely you're going to die. That is going to start the process that leads to death. But, but Eve says, God just says, you're going to die. You're going to die right when you eat it. Right. And and there's a difference between the two. And the serpent jumps on that and then starts to address what Eve said. Right. He says, oh, you're no, no, no. You're not going to certainly die. You're not going to immediately die. Right. Which is kind of true. And then the snake goes on to say, and, and the truth is that God's not as good as God seems. God's not as generous as God's making God's self out to be. Right. God's a liar and God's a jealous God right? In the sense of God wants to deny you access to something good. God wants to hoard it. God wants to hold it back, right? And, and the thing is about the lies that the serpent tells us that they're, they're kind of half right. They won't die at least immediately when they eat from the tree. And when they eat from the tree, they do gain a certain amount of knowledge that is God's, that's the purview of God's. And it's not even necessarily bad. The knowledge of good and evil throughout the scriptures appears to be a positive pursuit. It is a trait that allows one to embrace the nature of God. And, and one of the things that sets Genesis apart is that in ancient mythology, mythologies, gods possess qualities that are particularly attractive to humans. They possess powers that are particularly attractive to humans. Gods are kind of uh, sort of dirty snakes themselves in a lot of ancient mythology, but they have power that humans want. And so the God's goal is to prevent humans from accessing the power because they want it. They are jealous and they are guarding their divine status. And what the serpent is doing is saying that God is like every other God. It is just like every other God, but that's not the God of the Bible, right? We know that from Genesis 1 and 2, that God actually wants people to acquire godliness, their purpose. And so, so what happens is if the tree isn't prohibited, 
because it's bad to want knowledge of good and evil. And if it isn't prohibited by a divine power play, then the dominant theological belief is that God, with the truth of the knowledge of good and evil, is concerned with timing. Is that there's a timing to when people should begin to access certain knowledge so that it can be wisdom. So, for instance, there's nothing wrong with driving, right? Nathan Kendall is officially allowed to drive on her own. There's nothing wrong with that. But, Lindsay, there might be something wrong with Cam right now, right? How old's Cam? Five, yeah. So, so that could be a problem, right? So, so there's, there's nothing wrong with driving, but there could be something wrong with a five-year-old driving. And we're not going to talk a ton about that, but thing I would say is that can give you great into a lot of what God seems to prohibit. Don't grab hold of something before you're ready. Don't grab hold of something before it's time. And, and so ultimately, the thing I want us to sort of be grounded in as we, as we apply this text today is that the text is about us. It's not about the serpent. We have all these questions about the serpent. How'd the serpent get in? What was the serpent doing? Who does the serpent represent? But, but the text is really about how we got to where we are. The question that the author is answering in this text is what went wrong with humanity? And, and the answer is us. We went wrong. We have an inclination, the more we move away from God's presence, to make bad decisions. And our bad decisions always bring death to relationships and death to community. Sorry, I was checking my phone because sometimes it's people telling me they can't hear me. We're good to go. And, and we know that. We know that our bad decisions lead to death. We also know that there's something wrong, right? When I was, I read this article studying this, um, and the article was called, What Are We Like? 10 Psychological Findings That Revealed the Worst of Human Nature. It was unbelievable. I'm not going to share all 10. I'm just going to share a few with you. These are psychological studies and the, the resultant information. One is that we view minorities and the vulnerable as less than human. That that is our psychological inclination, that we have to fight against that. Uh, another discovery uh, this article talked about was that we already experienced, do you guys know what Schadenfreude is or Schadenfreude? Some people pronounce it. I've used this term before and a lot of people don't know it. It's a German word and only the Germans could come up with a word like this. And it's to take delight in the misfortune of others. It's a great word, right? Great word. It shows you that we had to develop that word, that there's something wrong with us. But it is developed as early as four years old. That as early as four years old, we start to take delight in the misfortune of others. We assume that downtrodden of the world must deserve their fate. Right? We believe in this idea of karma. Right? Here's, a, here's another, another study showed that we are incredibly close-minded. And you don't know, you know that's not a surprise about everybody else, but you think it's a surprise about you, right? Like we know everybody else is close-minded, but we don't think we are. We believe that we're rational and open-minded. And that straightforward way to correct beliefs, false beliefs, is relevant facts. But it was interesting in this article I read about a study in 1967 that showed participants who believed strongly for or against the death penalty completely ignored facts that undermined their positions. And this is the 60s, right? It's not a new development. We see opposing facts as undermining our sense of identity. 
and we will do whatever we have to to maintain our sense of identity. Here's a good one. I've only got two more. One, this was my, a 2014 study showed that we would rather electrocute ourselves than spend time in our own thoughts. And by the way, it was 67% of male participants and only 25% of female participants, which probably tells us that men have, a, have an arrogance and pride um, that is, that, that, that's pretty strong, right? And these people in a study ought to give themselves unpleasant electrical shocks rather than spend 15 minutes in peaceful contemplation. And then, and then the last thing that I'll share with you guys is the idea that, that at our base, deep within us, we are vain and we are overconfident. The article says this vain self-enhancement seems to be the most extreme and irrational in the case of our morality, such as how principled and fair we think we are. In fact, even jailed criminals think they are kinder, more trustworthy, and honest than the average member of the public. One of the studies they looked at in this point showed that we possess a preference for donating to charities that share our initials because we think they're more generous. That, that's who we are. For those of us that want to believe in our inherent goodness, there, there's a lot to, to question that. And that, of course, plays out in community. And Genesis 3 didn't need psychological studies to know this. Genesis 3 knew this thousands of years ago. And, and one of the most incredible things to me about a book like Genesis is that it speaks to how what and why in ways that have endured across time. It's why we still read it. It's why we still engage around it weekly. And so this week, we're going to look at why we're like this. Why are we so inclined to move towards the destruction of relationships and community when, when those are so core to what we need to survive? And really, we're going to focus on these four characteristics that kill our relationships and our community. So we're going to look at four characteristics that kill our relationships and our community. And then we're going to ask the question, is there any hope left for us? Because I hear people ask that all the time. Is there any hope left for us in our relationships, in our community? So, so these four characteristics, when we embrace these four characteristics, our relationships and our community slowly die. And like the death in the garden, it's slow. So, so we can think it's not there, right? We can think it's no big deal. But, but I'm going to say this. If you're wondering what's happening to you and God or you and someone else, think about that today and see if it's traceable back to any of these four characteristics. The first one's a word we don't use a lot. It's kind of a weird word to say. It's snark, right? Snark snarky snarkiness if you're familiar with this word it's not just sarcasm snark is not just sarcasm i'm actually a believer that sarcasm rightly placed is actually a whole lot of fun but but snark is rude or sarcastic criticism it, it's taking someone down with your sarcasm and taking down their ideas without actually addressing the person or the logic or rationality of the idea. And the serpent starts with snark. This, this idea, when he says, did God really say that? He's not asking for clarity. It, it's, it carries with it in the Hebrew a mocking tone. God really thinks that? You believe that? Right? That's laughable. How could you believe 
that God would say all these things would kill you, right? Which is funny because God doesn't say that, right? He, he twists truth with his snarkiness. And, and that's, that's the way we lose God a lot of times. Tim Keller says we lose God most often not through arguments but through atmosphere. And those are the questions that you often face against God, right? How could you believe in a God that whatever, fill in the blank, you believe in a God you can't see? You believe in a, a Jesus that rose from the dead? You believe in a God when this, this, and this happened in the world? And they're not really arguments. They're snark. Right, Because if you really engage the level of the arguments, philosophers and sociologists and scientists, there are people across every discipline, every academic discipline, that have answered those questions and believe in God. But it creates an atmosphere that's hard to respond to. And we often lose community the same way. We often start to lose our relationships the same way through being snarky with our spouses through being snarky with our kids or our parents or people we disagree with at work or, or people we disagree with in the community. Snark is the easiest tool to grab when we're hurt, when we're offended, or when we're stuck on our heels, when somebody pushes back. You know what I'm talking about? This is, I'm speaking to myself here. It is the easiest thing to grab because it can possess emotional weight without having to stand up to critical thought. And I love that, right? I love being able to push your buttons without having to defend my position. Because if you attack it, I can just say, I was just kidding. Come on, why are you so sensitive? Why are you so defensive? Right, it makes those arguments, right? It, it pushes you to defend yourself. And when you defend yourself, it says, well, gosh, you're really defensive. Right, that's what snark does. And also, externally, at least, the death that snark brings is slow. So it doesn't look as bad as just being mean to someone. We're able to kind of sneak it in. But think about what it's done to our relationships. Just a couple of years. The way snarkiness and being snarky and choosing to do that has killed civility and common decency. So here's question one. You get two minutes. I want, here's how this works in this space. Online, you got it. Here's how it works in this space. You can either discuss it in the, with the people sitting with you, or you can discuss it across a row if the person who you discuss it with doesn't lean back really hard, or you can wear your mask or, or do whatever. But, but I want you to spend some time discussing these questions. First, when was the last time you used snarkiness to make your argument? Can you remember that? How'd it go? Did it help? Did it help the relationship? And if you can't remember that or you don't want to talk about that, if it's easier for you to talk about other people messing up, when do you remember somebody else's snarkiness affecting you? Right? Draw back. When was somebody else critically sarcastic and it really affected you? So, go. you got a couple of minutes. Talk about that. All right, Bear. Bear started us off. Y'all take it from here. All right, finish your sentence or stop awkwardly in the middle of it. And then tell that person, hey, I'm going to call you this week and we'll talk about it. All right. Okay, so the so the first characteristic, again, these are these are starting points. All right. Well, I, I would love if someday we'll be back in a place where we're around tables and we're having meals together and and we'll discuss these things even longer. Right now, they're just sort of they're appetizers to engage around. All right. So the first characteristic that kills our relationships in our communities is snarkiness. It's it's just a quick way uh, to get to death. Second thing is legalism. 
right? The second thing is legalism. Do you notice that Eve adds a rule? Adam and Eve start to add rules of their own, right? And, and when we add our rules and our consequences to things that are beyond God's, we, we start to enter into legalism and legalism kills relationship and legalism kills community. Relationships and rules are constantly in a battle with each other. God is relational. Right? If you, you see this through Genesis 1 and 2, God is, God is engaged and, and God is connected and God says, reflect me, spend time with me, trust me. God is not a God of rules. The God of the Bible is not a God of rules. This is a weird sort of, again, twisted thing that, is, that has been said. The exact opposite has been said about God. When God started everything, how many rules did God have? One, you can eat all these things, don't eat that one thing. And then Eve adds to it almost immediately. God said we can't eat that, and God said we can't what? Touch it. We can't touch it. But that's not true. God never said that. We can't even touch it. And then she says, and if we touch it or eat it, we're going to die like that. And, and she made the consequences harsher than God made them. Right? God even has grace in the moment to say, like, you're not going to die immediately. Right? Like you will die if you do that, but but it won't be immediate. And she makes God harsher and more legalistic. And you see this in the New Testament, right? Like Jesus sort of brings people back. And, and Jesus says, There's there's this command, there's there's two really that sort of play into each other, and in them is summed up every other command. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. And the Pharisees can't even help but adding to that. They're like, All right, well, give me the rules for who my neighbor is. And, and that's what we do. We are inclined to legalism. We think we hate it. We love it. We think God makes all these rules that we don't like. But we make all these rules that make us feel better or make us feel better by making us feel worse. And, and part of the problem is humanity forces rules by its inability to live in relationships. There is a real death, right? We are aimed at relational destruction. We are aimed at these things that we're talking about today. And so the truth is we actually need a certain number of rules to function in a society and in a culture. We call them laws. And the weaker the relationship, the more rules we need. So ultimately, here's the way that we need to think about rules in relationship is that we need the minimum number of rules for the maximum strength of loving relationship. And that's different at different levels, right? You and your spouse will thrive if you're married. If you can figure out what are the minimum number of rules we need for the maximum amount of loving relationship. You and your children will thrive if you have children. If you can figure out that balance, it's something I'm always trying to figure out with our kids, right? If you're just constantly laying rules, this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No one can keep up with it. And if they can't keep up with it, they can't keep up with it and keep up with relationship. Don't overload your relationships with rules. Anything beyond 
the minimal number of rules for the maximum amount of loving relationship destroys us. It destroys us because it makes our relationships perfunctory. It makes them, it makes them just sort of like, I need to check the boxes rather than transformative. Right? We can all think of that story, right? Just you, all of us have been in a relationship and they're like, if you'll just tell me what to do. And the other person says, I don't want to have to tell you what to do. Right? And that's the tension that exists. We, we can't read each other mind, other's minds. We're going to be imperfect. But if I'm just checking a list in order to make sure I'm okay with Jane so then I can go about my day, I'm not really in loving relationship with Jane. And, and the other thing that happens when, when we throw too many rules on a relationship is that it ends up drawing the lines for whether or not you're good or bad based on my personal preferences rather than the truth. And that destroys the family of God as much as anything. If you look around at the church, if you look around at the family of God right now, it's this constant addition of rules. We can't help ourselves, right? We, we go start another church, and then that church has all its rules. And then we start another church, and, and that church has all its rules. And you can only be a part of this group if you follow these rules. And, and, and one thing I'll say is this, is, is that when we draw the lines for whether or not you're in the family of God, based on our personal preferences, we'll never come together to change the world. There just won't be enough of us that agree. We'll disagree more and more. The church known for its rules is not the church that's going to reflect Jesus in our, in our culture. Legalism will destroy us. Legalism already destroys our community. We have to live as something different. Third thing, third characteristic that destroys relationships and destroys communities is lies. And this, this should be an easy one for all of us, at least on the surface level, is we know that lies destroy community. Lies destroy community because lies take you out of community. You're not in a real relationship if you're lying. You're in a relationship with the lie. Right? The, the interesting thing about the serpent is the serpent doesn't say to Adam and Eve, God's not real. Right? That's not the argument. The serpent says, God's not good. God's not trustworthy. The serpent takes what God has done and twists the truth to meet its end and its narrative. And there is something about Adam and Eve that wants to embrace that narrative. I was going to talk about our tendency to embrace lies, and Jane asked me a great question. She said, well, why would somebody want to believe a lie? And the truth is, we don't want to believe lies. We want to believe lies that help us change the truth to suit our needs and our narrative. There's a long-studied phenomenon known as actor-observer asymmetry actor-observer asymmetry. And what this means is that we have a tendency to attribute other people's bad deeds. So like a spouse is unfaithful to their characters while attributing the same deeds performed by ourselves as due to situational influences. If they were unfaithful, it's because they're a bad person. They're a liar. They're terrible. If I was unfaithful, it's because I was forced into it because I didn't marry the right person, because what, what, whatever the thing is. 
And, and so we have these self-serving double standards that also make us think, man, why is everybody else in society becoming such a bad person while I'm such a, still such a good one? Right there, there, there are other studies that show that you can, you can say and do the same thing that somebody else says and does, but you will, do, you, you will judge their activity. If they're a stranger, if they're not a friend, you will judge their activity as rude and harsh and yours is completely appropriate. Like you just apply that to every political argument that you see happening right now, right? When we do it, it's fine. When you do it, it's horrible. Or we just did it because you did it. We are tempted to embrace lies because they help us justify our own behavior. And if I can justify my own behavior, I can order my world in a way that means I don't have to admit that I have a problem. I don't have to admit that, that I am in chaos. Because when you lose truth, you invite chaos. Every time. Lies deception and betrayal destroy people. It's part of why going through a divorce is so devastating. Because you believed that something was true. You believed that a relationship was true. You believed that somebody was true, and then suddenly everything comes into question. I've had friends go through it. I remember one of my friends who, who tried to go out on a date after he got divorced. He told me he came home and he just wept. And I said, why did you cry? He said, because I'm not sure who I am anymore. I thought I was this person. And that person was not someone that this would have happened to. And I can't look at anybody else because I don't know who I am. Lies destroy relationships. Lies destroy community. And we all are guilty of believing the lie that the garden talks about, of, of believing that if we obey God, what will happen is we will be kept down, right? That God really isn't that good, that God is looking to shut me out. God is looking to rob my happiness or my dreams, that, that this trust in God is being good and God is being loving has been twisted in our lives. And when we stop trusting God's goodness and love, we have to look somewhere else for God. That's why we create personal legalism. That's our proving ground. If I do this, 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 and this, I'm okay. I'll be my own God. If I cover myself with fig leaves, I'm fine. And, and we think that we can rule, but we always end up being ruled by our fears and by our anxiousness when we try to take the place of God in our lives. A lot of anxiousness is the result of putting ourselves in the place of God. I think things should go this way, but I'm not sure God knows any better than me. So I stay up wondering what's going to happen. The lie, I'm a better God than God, is the root of so much that has destroyed our relationships. So much that destroys our world. Second question, you get a couple of minutes, is this. Where do you find yourself thinking better God than God right now? Where in your life do you find yourself thinking of you're a better God than God right now? Go. All right. Four characteristics. First one, snarkiness. Second, 
legalism. Third one's lies. The last one is this, hiding. Adam and Eve's response to dealing with their own destructive behavior is to hide themselves from each other and from God because they're ashamed. Hiding is really just the passive version of lying. We're hiders. It is so in our nature to hide. We cannot bear to know who we are ourselves. That's why we prefer shock therapy to personal reflection. We cannot bear to be known by others. That's why we text everything and we break out into a sweat when somebody calls us. That's why we run away when we feel lonely or tired rather than towards. For some of us, it's why something like quarantine, which can be a good thing that preserves, can end up being a very dangerous thing that keeps us away for far longer than God would have been. We can't be bare, we can't, I'm sorry, we cannot bear to be known by God. It's why we build legalistic structures. We say, we'll check the boxes so we're okay with God. That's why we run from things like prayer and contemplation and worship. It's why do not be afraid is the first thing angels always have to say when they encounter humans in the Bible. It's how the people who were like, how could they have done that? take their own lives. I I never would have thought they seemed so happy. It's hiding. We think hiding will protect us. We think hiding will protect our place in a community. We think hiding will protect us from the shame that we feel deeply, but it never does. It's almost always the first step to our destruction. So I'm going to just take one more minute to answer this question. Which of these four characteristics do you see tempting you or destroying our community? I just want you to pick one and talk a little bit about the good stuff happening out there. I can tell. When you guys get louder, it means that something somebody's talking about something important that's really good uh and i encourage you guys to again continue conversations but, but we need to finish with right because we dug the hole right like we're in the hole together now we're like oh gosh we're a mess but 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 there's got to be hope right because time spent here should be good for you and good for our world otherwise what we're talking about isn't isn't wisdom it, it should be there there should be some answers to, to what we see. And here's the real problem with everything that we're talking about right now is I don't think any of you are surprised by any of these qualities. I don't think surprised that we have them. I don't think you were super surprised by the negative psychological studies, right? It, and, and we already know these things. We already know the inclinations towards lies and snarkiness and, and that these things d- destroy relationship. And it's not enough to just be told, hey, stop doing that. Because the best we could do is just double down on legalism, right? Like that's the best we can get is to say, here are all the rules. 
that will keep us from being these things. Because these characteristics, they're, they're deeply put into our nature at this point. What, what we ultimately need is transformation. And, and that's where the gospel meets us. And, and that's where the gospel becomes good news. Because in, in Jesus, we find transformation. In Jesus, the answer to death isn't get better so that you don't die. The answer to death is resurrection. The answer to death is something even better than not dying. It's that death can't stop you. Jesus is the opposite of snark, right? Jesus is humility while others are snarky. Gentleness, kindness, patience, and love. Jesus is the opposite of legalism, right? Stands against the Pharisees as the God of grace. Jesus is the opposite of lies. Jesus is not just a truth. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the opposite of hiding. On the cross, he is literally stripped and laid bare before all of humanity while shame is thrown at him again and again and again, but it can't stick. And when we see and embrace Jesus as our answer, destroyed relationships, destroyed community, become opportunities instead of cautionary tales. In Jesus, the things that are being destroyed and wasting away become a place where an even better story and an even better purpose can take place because the Bible's not just a story of how bad we are, it's the story of the pathway to our redemption. It's, it's this reversal of death that isn't just not dying, it's that death can't stop us. Resurrection isn't just getting life back, it's getting an actual better life than you would have had otherwise. Jesus offers something better than community. Jesus makes a way for communion. I'm going to have Nathan come on back up. We're going to talk a little bit about communion. If you look underneath your area, there should be a, a bowl uh, and it's got some juice in there and it's got some bread in there. If you need gluten-free bread, just raise your hand right now and Lou will bring it to you. I think everybody's themselves covered. But I don't know if you know, I don't know if this is just something pastors know about the difference between community and communion, but this is the definition. This is the like, the, the literal definition of communion. It's the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Communities come together for a variety of reasons to exchange goods and to ink each other, but communion is intimate. And communion is depth, right? That's the offer of Jesus. It's more than just things being okay. But thing, having a life that they never could have had otherwise. For us, for Christians, and this is one of the things I love about communion, is communion is also something we do. It, it's one of these hyper-realities that exist, right? It's a symbol and an act. And it, it has meaning 
in terms of what it represents, but it also has meaning in terms of what it does, right? We take the bread and, and, and touching it and breaking it and, and pulling it off. We recognize that there was someone who was broken so that we could be made whole. And, and, and then we take the juice and, and even in tasting it and bringing it in, we, we recognize and we engage on a totally different level that somebody loved us enough to pour out blood so that we don't have to be ashamed anymore. And when we take it to us, there's this mission that happens, right? Commute is humility. Communion is us saying, I cannot do this on my own. I need something to come into me and change me. Communion is grace. I'm not earning anything by this action, right? Look at me and be like, you ate bread. You drank juice. Way to go. You really changed your life today. Communion is a truth that sometimes I cannot see and I need to touch and taste. Communion is being found. It's God coming to us. Communion is the better resurrection. So we're going to do that now. I'm going to pray for us. If you want to grab that, you can, you can take it with us. So, so when we take in communion, part of it is this reminder that it's the spirit that Jesus puts within us, the same spirit that was in him that transforms us by living in us. It's not our rules. It's, it's not trying to be better. And, and it's the spirit who is our chance to, like God, live in our community, bringing order where there is chaos, light where there is darkness, salt to preserve things that are otherwise decaying and dying. To live as a city on a hill. To live as people in this world different than the ways of death and the ways of destruction. To resurrect relationship in community. And so I'd say when we think about these four characteristics this week, that if these are the things that slowly destroy relationships and community, then somehow if we can be transformed, if we can believe and put ourselves in God's hands to transform us, to embrace the opposite of these things, we can restore and resurrect and protect our relationships and not just our relationships because we're a city on a hill, our community. This is the call. That's supposed to come out of the message. And so I would, I would tell you maybe two things that you could grab hold of this week tangibly. First, personally, spend 15 minutes three times this week not shocking yourself. And instead, reflecting. Right? It's so weird. Our, our culture has grabbed hold of this idea, and you call it what you want, but, but the culture has said we need meditation more and more. And God's saying, yeah, you do. I've been saying this since I walked in the cool of the garden. Stop hiding. And, and so I would encourage you 15 minutes, three different times this week, to just reflect on with God, invite God in, and reflect on where you're tempted to destroy. And then share that with somebody. Don't hide it. Share it. Say, this is what I thought about this week. 
And then the second thing I would say that us as a community and us in our community, this is what I would encourage you to do. Stand against snarkiness and legalism because these are the two things that are defining the church in our community. We're snarky and we're legalistic. And it is not reflective of who Jesus is. And it is not reflective of who God resurrects us to be. And so I would encourage you to look for those things, to look for where snarkiness and legalism exist and instead step into those things with humility and patience and grace and love and kindness and gentleness. And begin to live out a different story for the church in our community.